Hi, thank you for downloading this podcast, Conversations with Dr. Rick Bowler. Enjoy! Welcome to our podcast, Conversations with Dr. Rick. Hi, Dad. Hi, Bibi. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about Rick's work in community and youth work over the years. Yeah. So, should we start off by you just telling me a little bit about community and youth work projects that you've either worked on or developed over the years? I can definitely do that, Bibi. It's a really interesting bit of a journey for me, really. I've been very privileged to work in a range of different places and different communities and with different people and different young people. So, most of my interest in getting into community and youth work came from my work in mental health, actually, that's really where my first walk into this sort of world of social, what I still call social welfare, although that's no longer seems to be an accepted term by current governments. When I started working, really, there was a social democratic project, seems to me, you know, Finland, Norway, Sweden, the Nordic countries and some other European countries have held on to this idea of a social welfare system. And the idea of a social welfare system is really that when people fall into hard times, through no fault of their own, that there is a a soft landing for them, that we can mitigate as a society against the, the worst elements. And that means that all of us, all of us contribute through our taxation and through our collective understanding of human societies, that uh, sometimes difficult things happen to people without them wanting them to happen. And if I just give an example of that, you know, it can be uh, a family where suddenly the mother is is getting violated by extreme violence from a a man. It's not the mother's fault and it's not the children's fault. What that is, is it's a fault that we as a society haven't been able to deal with intimate, interpersonal violence. If the father then leaves, the mother's then pushed into greater poverty and the children need help. But it might just be that if somebody loses a job, which isn't their fault, they haven't chosen to lose those jobs, then we need a social welfare system to support them. And mental health systems were part of those social welfare systems. Of course, the period I'm talking about when I started working in the mental health field, now let me just get this right, I started working in 1976 when I started out as a nursing assistant in a very large, what used to be called asylums, where I had actually expected to enter these places to learn how deeply caring, how deeply knowledgeable people were about the inner pain that people experiencing mental health breakdowns were suffering. Of course I didn't find that at all, I found something else, I found something much more akin to you know, Goffman's idea of the institution and stigma and uh, the prejudices that people bring into these places. There was a very much demarcated view between those people who were sane, there were people who worked in the hospital system that I worked in, their idea that their sanity was entirely based on the fact that they were members of staff and not patients and it seemed a really very flimsy argument to make about who was sane and who was insane at that period of time and much before the the 1970s there was a very archaic and very binary view of sanity and insanity madness and health and well-being and 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 many of the patients actually that were in uh, psychiatric hospitals were actually people who were suffering dementia so a good number of the people in the hospitals actually had a physical illness but they were actually seen as mentally 
ill because people needed to deal with their behaviour. I think both the science of our bodies has improved, and but I think also our understanding of humanity and our understanding of psychological processes and social psychological processes have improved, and also our knowledge of things like gender, uh, race, class, how, how our lives are also structured so that poverty has a real difficult impact on people's health and well-being but also we now know that um, these things are stratified like most other things so most of the people that would have come into psychiatric hospitals in in those days were were not the, the wealthiest in society wealthy people dealt with these problems in a very different way so we had all sorts of complicated different ways of thinking about it, mental health and, and mental well-being today we're much more enlightened but actually we're caught with the demise of a social welfare system. When they closed the big mental hospitals down, which was a good policy in overall terms, but actually what they did was we just, we privatised it. We didn't put the money that we made from selling off the land that was owned by us as a society, uh, that land went into private housing development. Um, so the money was, didn't follow the patient, if you like. The, the money didn't follow the idea that we could put that money into communities and develop community resources which would enable people who were struggling in their daily lives with whatever kind of breakdowns they might be having to get the social support that people need to feel a part of something bigger. Reading recommendations by Rick Bowler. Paul Watzlawick, John Weekland and Richard Fish, Principles of Problem Formation and Problem Resolution the title of the book is Change. Promoting young people's well-being through empowerment and agency, a critical framework for practice by Lucy Maynard and Cass Stewart. A nice little book actually because it talks through complex things of therapeutic ideas and critical practices. It's got some exercise and some really detailed ways of us thinking about um, how, how young people's well-being really is underpinned by them feeling positively empowered and having a, an active and positive voice uh, about their own lives. There's a really lovely short book by uh, Antonia Dada and it's about free air and education. That's the title of the book, but it's through the eyes and lens of Antonia Dada, a book introduced by George Shire and it's by uh, Soundings and the title of the book is Race, Identity and Belonging. It's uh, a soundings collection edited by Sally Davison and Jonathan Rutherford. Look at the various different chapters in there um, about what one learns from work and, and how we are with people. There's a really good book by Stephen Crossley, In Their Place, The Imagined Geographies of Poverty. He looks at those issues of structure and history and discourse. But he also joins together the reality that the poor have been talked about in very particular ways in the British state from Victorian times to to date. Uh, but Stephen's drive is, is personal, a, a view of seeing people as human beings. So then what came next? What did I do next? Uh, my interest really towards the end of my time in the in mental health was in working with young people actually. I, I was really interested in working with adolescents who, who were having mental health difficulties 
and uh, and I trained a little in family therapy work and I, I, I was really interested in psychodynamic sort of therapeutic ways of working and so I left the health service and I left those places because I, there was nothing I found it that there was no spaces for me to really articulate the way I wanted to, to develop my work and I ended up uh, going to work in the voluntary and community sector and I ended up working with uh, Save the Children Fund with the, the first organisation I work with outside of the NHS on a project uh, called the Milestones Project in Sunderland and oh, it was it was a project really designed to work with young mostly white working class young men actually and, and women as, a, as an alternative either to the difficulties they were having in the care system and or the the fact that they were about to face a custodial prison sentence to try and look at a different way of intervening in their lives and getting them to take responsibility for the life world difficulties they had in the context in which they were living. Did you have a way of sort of measuring that and evaluating that? Yes, we did actually. The project was measured in terms of the um, the the time span of people not offending. So that was one of the things we did when we um, we would go to court and we would ask the courts to let the young people come to work with us as as an alternative to going to custody. And we were, I think, we were very successful over the the time that we had young people. Very often, in fact, very few of the young people over a period of a year and year and a half. Uh, offended at all they were really caught up in the projects and and part of the project was to develop honest respectful relationships with the young people but also to listen to them and to hear what their concerns were and to try and work with them on the kind of concerns that they had and very often young people and we're talking here of um, 14 15 16 17 17 year old young people from working class areas in Sunderland you know, their life chances were very poor and some of the circumstances that they lived in were very difficult and they, you know, some of them came from extremely loving families, others came from more disruptive families. But actually what the young people, all of them seemed to have was that they didn't seem to have somebody who was willing to listen to what their needs were and what, how their lives were planning out and and the kind of decisions that they could make, so to work with them really in an educational way to help them better understand um, the the contexts and concerns of their own lives and the impact of the decisions that they were going to make on themselves and on other people. Um, As you were talking then, I was just sort Mm. of remembering going going there and visiting Mm. as your child, obviously. Yes. And um, just being like settled somewhere while you were getting on with your work and I loved it I, there was did, was there like a little mezzanine level with bean bags and stuff yes there was yeah yeah it was I just a, remember it being the coolest place yeah, ever yeah and thinking when I grow up I want to live somewhere like this like mm-hmm. there wasn't a it was a big open space wasn't it and there was yeah. a mezzanine level I remember there being bean bags and a little cool kitchen and lots of places for talking and chilling yes yeah. I always felt really like it was a an awesome place to be and you could just go and be yourself and I, I wasn't really aware of what the young people were doing there it was just I felt like I was cool being a part of it yeah so um, we tried to form a sort of social group with the young people so we did a lot of group work and um, we did a lot of work with their families we did a lot of work back in their communities but there was a lot of confrontational I mean elegant challenging confrontational work but so that kind of youth work um, probably would have been seen as much more targeted work it was um, you know the young people didn't choose in all open senses to come to us but actually we did give them the choice we would interview them in some depth at the very beginning 
to give them the choice. They could come to us or they could choose to go to court and take their chances to get a non-custodial sentence or a custodial sentence. And, you know, we did have one or two young people choose to go uh, to, to custody. Uh, they, that was their choice. They made that choice. We weren't there to offer them a soft option. It wasn't really soft or hard option. I it suppose w- it's like any of these sorts of situations, whatever age you are, you can only really engage with them if you want to. Yeah. You're only going to be successful if you go into them with a, a real desire to want to achieve something at the end of it. Yes. Um, and what it taught me, actually, Bibi, what taught me, what taught me, Anna, you know, it was a fantastic uh, group of people to work with. And we had, you know, some good, great supervisors and great consultants. And, uh, you know, it was really excellent sort of uh, an excellent setup, actually, to try and develop uh, the kind of intervention work that was needed. But what it taught me was that being absolutely open and upfront and honest with uh, young people as of course I think with anybody in communities, adults and, and young people, children, adults and young people, is important. It is really important. It's age appropriate, so we, you obviously use age appropriate language, but it's important that they know that if you say you're going to do this, you're going to do this. And if you're, so don't promise anybody something you can't offer, um, but actually tell them what, what it is on the tin was there like a policy in place or did you develop your own policy for that, you know, in terms of... Well, we were, you know, Say the Children Fund at that time was... was uh, Save the Children Fund actually at that time had a lot of project work um, in the UK, actually. It's, it, it's, um, so it ran a lot of family centres all over the place. Um, it had a lot of work in very poor communities. It was doing some work with some of the most disadvantaged people in Britain at that time and it was um, it was innovative work uh, it did some really fantastic work in in early years and primary settings you know uh, the building blocks project uh, holistic storytelling um, uh, in in early years and primary that um, that was a fantastic project uh, uh, but it was a time I guess of experimentation and, the, and it was a time where the state saw itself as having some responsibilities to be in partnership with things like the voluntary and community sector to try and provide innovative social welfare provisions. So these were ideas to try and save the state money in the long term. Custody is extremely expensive, mm. poverty is extremely expensive, um, having young people waste their lives or make very poor decisions is extremely expensive. And so there was an idea, I think, that, that could we could the state, in its broader sense, intervene with people using, you know, new ideas and um, new evaluated processes of intervention that might be effective. And so it was a very it was it was evaluated and it was it, it was effective. Of course, like most things, as I came to learn in life, that irrespective of how effective in it. Um, uh, you are, how good you are, governments change, yeah, yeah priorities change, everything's short term, yeah. uh, and what and um, and so funding to maintain that kind of work is never uh, assured. And I can think of many projects where that were highly successful that I was involved with, not necessarily to do with me, they were to do with all the people that worked in it. Yeah, the money dries up. And but, the, yeah. but the finances and yeah. the governmental will 
to support them yeah. dries up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But of course that's not a story that's told in the mainstream press. Yeah. So then after milestones, what came next? All right, um, so, well, I, you know, so from milestones, I went and helped uh, set up and develop a, a street drug agency because I, um, in the previous, just before I'd left the mental health services, I'd been working in the regional drug and alcohol um, uh, therapeutic unit. And um, so I was really interested in, in addictions. Clearly, of course, mental health and addictions have been my major parts of my own life if I think about a biographical approach here and so I was really interested in how how we could intervene and think about those aspects of life so I went and set up um, with uh, work for a couple of agencies that um, put some money and um, infrastructure around a project called Street Level and Street Level was a, the, a street drug agency in South Tyneside very successful again I think we had a lot of a lot of street junkies as they were called uh, in brackets you know going to uh, therapeutic units and giving up um, giving up drugs and we dealt with a lot of issues that uh, in people's lives and at what point did they come to you were they referred to you or did they come off the street to you were they wanting to come off drugs or just what was the service no no it's a great great question actually no well, it's a bit of a combination actually it's uh, we tended to deal most mostly with uh, illegal drug users although of course most illegal drug users still use legal drugs um, and um, and so the alcohol agencies were our sister agencies um, and the one in South Tanso uh, was run by Pam Reed actually it was really brilliant and she was she was our, our, like a sister in every other way we, we work very closely together as agencies um, but most people, we wanted to have an agency where, where actually we wanted street drug users, and I was a bit crazy really, to come and just come and be with us. We did get referrals, but often people came. We had a, a coffee bar reception area which we'd set up, um, which was a, uh, I'd like to think of it as a kind of um, chill out therapeutic area where we had very detailed conversations with people who came, and we had a very clear set of rules but nobody could pass from that into the project without um, a clear kind of process of assessment because there was rules governing what, how you may, must behave when you came into the project because of course street junkies like most other people if you're chaotic in your lifestyle you can be chaotic without thinking about the needs of others and it was really important to us that once you came into the central part of the project, you had to think about others. You had to think about how your behaviour might impact on others. So we couldn't afford to have people bring drugs in. Um, well, it just seems to make sense to me, though. Yeah. Um, like having a place where you can have open dialogue or whatever, and then if you want further help, yeah. then there's the door for that. And if yes. you don't, there's the door for out. Yes. Um, and that's what we were. Because again, with. I was mentioning that about milestones. It's only a, a matter of whether people want it or not. You can't force them. Yeah. Um, but what was I going to ask you there? Oh, the age, kind of. Well, the age range there was really well. We had we did have some. We had sort of some detached outreach workers dealing much more with young people. And um, uh, a lot. I was really conscious that I didn't want young people who were just involved in the early stages of dabbling with drugs or you know using glue or using a bit of alcohol to come in and meet with quite hardened street drug 
users. I think that keeping those two cohorts apart, I mean, of course, they might meet on the street. That's 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 not really our responsibility. But I think if you're running an agency, you have to be responsible to not bring vulnerable young people in yeah. contact with yeah. quite potentially yeah, some very dodgy older people yeah, uh, you know because that have the a outcome negative effect of what you want in the end yeah absolutely you're just <laughs> you're just causing you're creating a problem so here's the people you can buy your drugs off <laughs> yes. experienced at it. so i think those projects yeah. taught me several things actually one was about therapeutic keeping a therapeutic eye on community and social interventions that was important so that that we never forgot that people are people that you never forgot that for scientific purposes a great sort of a quote somewhere science in fact we used it in milestones for scientific purposes treat human beings as if they're human and and we kept that um kept that idea of a therapeutic lens upon community-based interventions and sometimes quite in-depth individual interventions um, but with clear boundaries always the idea is to try and have clear boundaries what is my relationship with you um, this is who I am this is what you'll get um, and and I think those that you know I should imagine you would find out a lot about people in that first process as well in that first place the chill out coffee place yeah where you you know, people are sharing their stories with each other and with you, and so by the time they come much further into the project, you know a lot more about them. Yes, um, absolutely, Bibi. I think it was a really interesting. It was a because in the first six months of that forming, we developed a women's group because it was clear to us that there was uh, gender was a major issue in the drug field, um, and that women's experiences of working their way through um, uh, a life world where drugs, uh, illegal drugs are, are an issue, is very different to men's. That, um, that, that so these, these uh, gender, you know, doesn't stop at the door of, of, of these disparate areas of, of, of social intervention. Um, or, uh, and so we, we developed that. We also enabled um, some of the street drug users to help us run the cafe uh, so that you could develop their entrepreneurial skills in other ways um, and, and build trust. We, it, uh, people themselves started to take more control over a safe environment so I think the majority of people who came in wanted it to be safe so occasionally when a dangerous person came in person who had a pretense propensity to violence um, and control and exploitation would come in and there are, are those people in all worlds and you know we mustn't be under an illusion that those people don't don't exist uh, you know, in an exploitative world you're going to have people who want to exploit other people uh, we would have to have uh, means of uh, confrontation with them and getting them to leave as peacefully as possible and that was the job of the staff we didn't expect users to do that, so it, it was really quite important for us to be attentive to who was coming in all the time yeah. and to be around. A bit hairy sometimes. It was a useful intervention at that time, there was no street resources really. And of course this was also a time when HIV was hitting the world in a big way and of course one of those worlds where HIV was predominant was in the drug field. Um, because people were sharing needles um, and uh, and 
again, I go back to, you know, I suppose if you whatever anybody's ever watched train spotting will kind of uh, understand this. But, you know, there were places like, particularly in Glasgow, Edinburgh, D Dublin, a kind of real plethora of drugs being available at a time of austerity, actually. There was very little work, there was a, a lot of poverty, there was a lot of chaos in the worlds of young people, and many of them were crashing about. So drugs had moved from what might have been a middle-class domain, if one thinks about it, in those sort of... Those well, where people write poetry in an opium den. Yes, <laughs> where people write poetry in an opium den, to actually having, you know, working-class people, I mean, in places like, I think, in places like Glasgow, shooting up sleeping pills, you know. I mean, it's just, it was a horrible kind of mix of very dangerous drugs being, you know, legal drugs being mixed with illegal drugs. People were desperate. People were, I think that people were lost in themselves because the society itself was lost. We had no, we, we were losing this idea of a social system of, of support. Work had gone. Work, we were moving from an industrial society to a post-industrial society. We had a government of neglect, so there was no planning. There was no thought to planning. Um, it was all about individual. It sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it was horrible. It, it sounds very familiar to today, actually. Yeah. And street drug projects, you know, and different people were experimenting with different things. So in Liverpool, they experimented with, I thought, a very, very sensible thing called harm reduction, where they, we were doing harm reduction too, but they would do um, something around trying to prescribe to, you know, heroin users heroin. So you would prescribe drugs to try and get the drug addict to be able to reduce their dependency on the drug, but actually to get away from crime. Because, of course, one of the problems with having a drug addiction is it's expensive. So people need money. And where do people get money? Well, often they steal it from their auntie or they steal it from somebody else down the road. So the, the, those areas of criminality and addiction... And, it all overlaps, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, overlap and, um, and gendered violence and exploitation. It was all, it's a murky, murky wee world. But the people in it, the, most of the people I ever worked with and most of the people were trying their best to have a life. You know, the Thatcher government had come in in 1979 and what we ended up having was a shift in sands really to this idea of a short sharp shock and the idea I think was to try and withdraw the state and the idea of withdrawing the, the notion that all of us are made in the places that we're from. So our identities and how we, we are is as much to do with how we've been, how so we're formed in the context of our lives, really, and so, and I believe that I'm absolutely uh, assured of that uh, in in all sorts of ways, and and yet this this new system came in, and it was it was termed I think short short sharp shock, and the idea was that people needed to be individualised. That actually what was happening was that these were aberrant people. That somehow there was a kind of it's a bit of a eugenics kind of argument, really, Bibi. It's, it's this idea that somehow in the genes or in the cultures of certain people, and this was a, a deeply, I mean, it was a deeply racialized and, and deeply, actually it was a deeply offensive government in all sorts of ways, but it, it chose to target things like single mothers. So single mothers were to blame for the decay in in uh, local neighbourhoods, uh, that uh, young criminals were needed to be grabbed and given a short, sharp shock and maybe put in the army. And really, it's a sort of narrow-minded, posh-boy idea. 
you know. So what next? Okay, so I then moved from that. Actually, I went back to Save the Children Fund, and this time, wow, it's a really interesting job here, working with uh, gypsy and traveller communities around children's rights. Uh, it was in the north of England, but initially for the first year, it was from the West Midlands across to the East Midlands, all the way up to the Scottish border. So I drove a lot. Is that when you did your backing? Yes, it was when I did my backing. But I moved down to Bradford, uh, which was a great joy for me because I, I, I got a little bit out of Newcastle and went to experience another city and another place. And, um, you know, was based in Leeds. That's where Leeds was the regional divisional headquarter. So we had a, a regional headquarter in Leeds, one in Manchester. And, and I worked across those two domains for the first year. Um, and then in the second, third and fourth year, maybe, I worked in the northeast only from the Leeds Yorkshire area up to the Scottish border so so it was a really interesting job that so it was really working with a community work really I was really for more in, in community development work it's, it's when I did my postgraduate study and um, went on to do my masters in, in this and try to understand community development how to utilize research as a tool but a participative tool because the communities that I work with then seem to me to be uh, some of the most independent people I'd ever met in my life. I mean, dear me, they, they needed me much, much less than I needed them. And by far, the vast majority of uh, people in the gypsy community I met very kind and cared for me very much and looked after me and I tried to be honest and open and look after them and we had a, a good relationship. What was the kind of year, time frame here? For so again we're here now into now the late 80s um, and into the early 90s. So I think I remember coming to meet some of your traveller clients or were they clients? Yes well they were. Clients and they were lovely, they, um, yeah. I remember getting present and I looked after. Yes they loved you, they loved you and, and, and Meg and actually, they, they, no they were, they were of course, you know, like a lot of communities, you know, the gypsy and travel community are very misunderstood. Uh, they're heavily stigmatised. Very they're difficult actually, community to get in, though, for you. Very, very difficult community to to get into because, of course, why would why would a community that's been treated with such suspicion suddenly open its arms to outsiders? And of course. Um, you know, say the children from had a good history of working with gypsy travellers, but it was a difficult world. The difficult world of politics plays out here, and um, and you know there were characters in the gypsy community who, of course, were as corrupt as some of the, the local authority and political people uh, in government that that they work with. So that you know, so you get corruption everywhere, and the problem is that so there were people in central government and local government that wanted to find easy solutions to complex problems. So community leaders were a big part of the, put it in brackets here, race relations industry, community relations industry of the British state. And the dilemma with that is that, of course, community leaders very often appear to be people who are like the people who want them. So men will want men to talk to because they assume that men run communities. Uh, so that's the first problem. The second one is that um, men who come offering easy solutions, you know, you give me a little bit of a, you know, give me some money and I'll keep them quiet, you know, when I can sort this problem out for you. And, oh yeah, if I get a bit of this and a bit of that. And so if you've got a wheeler dealer who's, um, you know, a bit of a miss a fix it, 
And now, just because of the way that we see the world, I don't know if you're talking about government or the traveller community. No, I'm talking really <laughs> here, exactly, that's exactly <laughs> right, Bibi. And actually what I'm talking about is, I'm talking about if we cut across the idea of communities having particular characteristics and actually talk about human beings having particular characteristics. What I'm really talking about here is people in government playing Mr Fixit in national government, playing with Mr Fixits in local government, who then play with Mr Fixits in local communities. And so we had a group of Mr Fixits, if we call them that, you know, wheeling and dealing um, the politics of what would happen to the gypsy community. And I think some of the recent stuff that's just come out on British histories around the gypsy community is really brilliant because it tells us something else, actually. I think gypsy community itself as a whole is a lot of different family groupings, actually, but the community as a whole has been very badly treated um, by the state. You know, um, so you know, my example would be that traveller sites were built after some, after some um, very good Labour MPs actually pushing and f pushing for that to happen, so that gypsies families could have a a settled place. But they were never given tenancy agreements. They were never given full tenancies. They were always licensed, so they never had the right of occupation. Mm. And I think you need to have right of occupation if you're going to settle. You, you can't constantly be on, on a flimsy arrangement with your landlord because the landlord may change. And they never built enough sites. So there was never enough sites for all of the gypsy families. So it was a really, you know, it was a very difficult... So which, did you work particularly with the young people, children? With, if right. it was, say, the children, was it children or...? I tell you this story, I tell my students this story, and it really is about how we as professionals need to get a grip to our own sense of self and our own sense of importance and our own responsibilities to what it is that we are actually there to do in work. And so my very first meeting with the people from the gypsy communities was uh, on a big, sprawling, muddy field in a place called Wakefield. And they had actually a really good local authority equality officer who I really liked. I thought he was really good. So they had some very good people in Wakefield trying to manage um, complex situations around equality and diversity. But I first, so I first was tipped off to go to this site. Somebody had said, this is a place you need to go. So as um, you know, I think my mother would have expected if I'm going to go and visit people for the very first time, I'm presenting as a representative of Save the Children Fund. I went in a Were suit. You in a nice suit. I went in a nice suit with my uh, my nice briefcase, which had key papers in it that I wanted to share with people because there was a changing, the government were in the process of changing the law about gypsies and travellers and settlement so they were about to bring in some quite retrograde laws which would have really had a damaging effect on people. So I wanted to try and share, uh, find out what people thought about that. Um, and the only gypsies really that I can remember ever meeting were the people that used to come to my door when we were kids. My mum was always very good, so people would come to the door, women often would come to the door, you know, selling pegs or charms or, you know, uh, heather or whatever it was. And, and that was part of my childhood, so that, my only memory of meeting gypsies was that through that prism. So I didn't really know anything very much about the community other than what I'd read. 
So, I, so in I, a suit, ready to buy a charm. Yes, so I went to this big site, uh, and it was a big sprawling site. There was yeah, maybe 60 trailers on this site, so it was a lot of different families living on the place. There was a, a, a little uh, stream running through it. It was Everybody was living under electronic pylons. I thought this was terrible. I'd always felt that people should never have to live under electronic pylons. I always felt when I went walking in the woods when you were little, mm. uh, I used to try and avoid walking under pylons. I couldn't think of anything worse than people. I think of So it was a really awful um, place, but it was a place actually where families were living. And there was a lot of kids when I arrived. There was a lot of kids um, and there was a lot of women. There was very few men. I don't think I saw a man. I can't remember seeing a man as such. But so the men clearly stayed behind somewhere or they were out working. They might have been out working. I don't know what was happening. But I was greeted by a good number of women and a lot of kids and a lot of kids making a lot of no noise as kids do. And so I kind of introduced myself and they were, who are you? You know, and so I introduced myself. Hi, I'm Rick Bowler. I work for Save the Children Fund and, and I'm... And my job was to, uh, I was the development officer, Northern Development Officer, looking at children's rights within the Gypsy and Traveller community, okay? So I was there to try and understand issues of children's rights. But the moment I said I work for Save the Children Fund, what they did with the women was brilliant. They started to take some money out of their pockets and they said, oh, you know, we are also worried about those poor children too. <laughs> so immediately I was confronted by the reality that I was trying to, to I was I was in a position where they had, had had me. They had me in the most beautiful way because what I then had to do was say, well actually here I'm not here I'm not here to take your money for other people's poor children. I'm here to work with your children. Okay? <laughs> Which is a really interesting thing to have to say. Mm -hmm. Suddenly I'm in a, a position where I'm thinking, my goodness me, this is really fantastic actually. This is, I'm with, I'm, I'm now with people who don't need me safeguarding them, yeah. What needs to happen is we need to have some honest discussions and I need to also be honest. I need to actually cut through my own cloth and really work out what is it, who is it I'm working for, what is it I'm working for here, what are the central core concerns that are at stake here. And this is a community that's going to teach me. Um, mm. And so I then spent quite a lot of time over the next year and more getting to know some of the families on that site and then introducing me to other people and I would go and visit those and trying to understand what their worlds were and what their concerns were. What, what are the concerns of this Well, it goes back and to the listening to the stories of the people to find out what the people need. Yes not deciding what they need before you've spoken to them. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a beautiful example of that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, no it is. Yeah. And, and I was well looked after and I was, you know, mostly treated like, you know, what you are. Sometimes you fall out with people and you don't get on with them. But, mm -hmm. you know, um, I met some fantastic people, rich, rich, rich people in the sense of their richness as, of human, as you know, their humanity, um, who had a life, but their life had been, it was difficult life. Mm because they were, were seen to be very, they were seen by other people to be a dangerous community. Still are. And still are. Yeah. Uh, so then that project came to an end. I worked with a group of gypsies in the northeast to set up something called the Northern Gypsy Council. There was no democratic structure. There were gypsy organisations around. Some were much more open and transparent than others. 
and some were run by Mr Fixit really and the trouble with Mr Fixit and the kind of organisation is that they're not democratic at all and that gypsy families themselves can be easily bought and sold. If, you, if you're not part of the mainstream you're very vulnerable actually to exploitation and the people in power in, in our social systems need to understand that. They should understand that better. I suspect many of them don't understand it better because some of them are very used to exploitation. Well, yes, yeah? I was just... You know, yeah. so they're... It so works in their favour, doesn't it? It works in their favour. They've been brought up, but they're so privileged that they have no idea that, they're, they're, that part mm. of their business is an exploitative business. Yeah. Um, you know, I had the final bit of it, I've worked for the Tyne and Weir Race Equality Council in a partnership with the Northern Gypsy Council and we'd worked on um, a research report but there were difficulties about the job and there was difficulties for Save the Children Fund in relation to working with um, a range of communities and they were changing, they were in a process of change. So the job came to an end. So for I think maybe three years I took over the management of that project, it was with NCH who were known as Action for Children, NCH Action for Children, another youth youth charity. I had some brilliant people there that I could learn from and Spencer and people like that and some really brilliant fellow managers so we had a management group and I used to sit with them and they all ran family centres and I got to know a lot of things about the family centre networks but I so I ran and became I qualified as a national family mediator at that time and managed the family mediation project for a few years in Durham. It was family mediation where uh, people were splitting up and there were children involved, so that was our primary interest. Uh, we had a contact centre too, so how can you help parents who are splitting up keep a focus on their children, uh, which of course was a very important issue for me, and how can we do that in a way where the child or the children are least impacted by the difficulties of separation. And of course finance is an important part of separation, but emotions are a hugely important part of separation. And of course some people separate uh, because there are, there are issues of violence. And so we had to think through and, and do work with families where we were trying to be relatively independent. Uh, it, it taught me a lot about this concept of neutrality which I think is quite big in middle-class circles of work, but um, you know, people seem to like the idea that they're neutral, which all often means that we ourselves as independent people don't have to be seen to be a part of it. Oh, well, you know, we're just above this, we're, we're kind of above this kind of a problem, so we're neutral. Well, in fact, actually, I don't think you can be neutral in these things, of course. Our focus as NCH, Action for Children, was on children. So first and foremost, I was not neutral. Uh, our interest was about children and how their parents separate. But secondly, there are, all the evidence was that, um, that some families, some um, live with a degree of violence which is unacceptable. Actually, all violence is unacceptable in families. And so we had to keep an eye on um, the, the, the safeguarding of uh, you know, vulnerable parents as well as children. Um, and that's at that point, I ended up uh, applying for the job at the University of Sunderland uh, to um, teach community youth workers. I felt very privileged to get the job because I knew the quality of people that were, were, were there and I, you know, got the job and for the last 20 something years now, maybe 23 years it might be, so 1996 to 2019, yeah, uh, I've been working as an academic lecturer and practitioner, researcher at the University of Sunderland. Hi, thanks for listening to me talking to my dad 
about his varied work history. Bye for now. So as a little reward for making it this far, I thought I would include a couple of outtakes just to show how funny and sometimes quite tricky it is to pin my dad down to have a conversation. Being accused of being early and eating into Precious writing time. Says, oh, you were on time. A bit early, actually. Oh. You would have written right up until the point I knocked on the door. I was writing right up until <laughs> I knocked on the door. I think I only wanted to do ten minutes. Probably done an hour. A common sound I hear whilst waiting for me dad to be free. This can go on for hours. Dad being distracted by interruptions and forgetting what we're doing. I've managed to blag a lift out of Dad though. All right. So we've got Sorry. 10 minutes. We, we could drive down so, together and then go for lunch. Uh, could do. Yes. Are you ready? Well, I can wax and... Hang on, don't get ready yet. Quick things on and go, <laughs> yes, five minutes. <laughs> right. Just get up and go. <laughs> right. Uh, Hello. Hello. Hello, big brother. Don't interrupt. Did oh, I? we've just finished. Oh. We haven't We hadn't finished. So then I'm just thinking we've run out of time-ish. So okay. I'm going to be, I'm going to ask you a favour. Okay. Can I have a lift? Bye for now. Don't be racist.